I'm Steve Fisher. In her autobiography, Gorillas in the Mist, Diane Fossey wrote, Little did I know then that by setting up two small tents in the wilderness of the Virungas, I had launched the beginnings of what was to become an internationally renowned research station, eventually to be utilized by students and scientists from many countries. Although her life was cut short, her work continues through the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, studying and working to save the great mountain gorillas of Rwanda and the Grower gorillas of Congo. Tara Stowinski is the president, CEO, and chief scientific officer of the fund today. We definitely have been part of a wonderful larger collaborative effort that has seen mountain gorillas in particular, which are the species or the subspecies that Diane Fossey started with. She thought they would be extinct before the year 2000, and instead they're the only great ape on the planet that is increasing in number. So they were actually downgraded from critically endangered to endangered just a few years ago. But there are just over a thousand of them left on the planet. So it is a very, it's a success story, but it's a very fragile success. So they are a conservation dependent species for sure. Tara is with us to talk about the accomplishments and ongoing work of the fund to keep gorillas in our midst on Life Slices. Welcome to Life Slices, Tara Stowinski. I'm going to start with a question. Hopefully you don't need too much preparation to answer. Who is Tara Stowinski? Tara Stowinski is a primatologist by training, and I am now the president and CEO of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund and also the chief scientific officer for the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. Okay, then that brings up my next question. What is the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund? Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund is the world's longest and largest organization, longest running and largest organization that is dedicated entirely to the conservation of gorillas. So we were started by Dr. Diane Fossey herself back in 1967. So we're celebrating our 55th anniversary this year. And we work to protect gorillas in their habitats in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and then also to support local communities in the regions where these animals live. So our motto is helping people saving gorillas, and hopefully we'll get some time to talk about what that actually means during the podcast. That's on there. Now, what drew you personally to the study of gorillas? Great question. I, uh, like Diane Fossey, when I was young, I wanted to be a veterinarian. That's the career path I thought I was going to choose. I was actually accepted to vet school, but took a year off to go do my master's in the UK. And when I finished that up, I got the opportunity to go to Africa. And I studied, a jack. I supported a PhD student studying jackals. We were completely nocturnal. We never actually saw the jackals. They had radio collars on. So we would just listen to these beeps and follow them around in a field. And I just became transfixed with studying animal behavior. I loved it. So when I came back, I switched from medicine to animal behavior. And that's what got me on the path that I am. And I've now been working for the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. This is my 20th anniversary of working for the organization. And that time, I'm guessing you've saved a lot of gorillas. Yes. We definitely have been part of a wonderful larger collaborative effort that has seen mountain gorillas in particular, which are the species or the subspecies that Diane Fossey started with. She thought they would be extinct before the year 2000. And instead, they're the only great ape on the planet that is increasing in number. So they were actually downgraded from critically endangered to endangered just a few years ago. But there are just over a thousand of them left on the planet. So it is a very, it's a success story, but it's a very fragile success. So they are a conservation dependent species 
for sure. So what exactly does the fund do? We operate in kind of four key strategic pillars. So the first one is daily protection of individual gorillas and their families. So we have a staff of almost 300 people in Africa, and over half of them are literally in the forest every single day protecting gorillas and their habitats. So they are checking on all the individuals under our care. They're removing snares or other illegal activities. I always say that it's kind of like when you come home and you check to make sure that your partner, your kids, or your your pets are all okay, that's what we do every day for the gorilla families we protect. We make sure they're all there. If they're missing, we organize a patrol to see if they've been caught in a snare. If they're they're sick, we'll notify our colleagues, our veterinary colleagues, so they can come and check on them. So very intensive, we call it extreme conservation. A second pillar is science. That is originally why Diane Fossey went to study the mountain gorillas, to learn more about them. And we still conduct a lot of critical science. We learn more about the gorillas every day. People say after 55 years, don't you know everything there is to know? And we certainly don't. The gorillas are constantly surprising us. But we do a lot more than study gorillas. We study the whole ecosystem because gorillas live in an ecosystem. To know if the gorillas are going to be healthy in the long term, we have to know if the ecosystem is healthy. So we have a particular focus on important indicator species like birds, amphibians, certain plants, wetlands. So those are kind of our, we always say, our what we inherited from Diane, the the protection and the science. The other side of what we do is, is really the people side of conservation. So we're very committed to training the next generation of conservationists, particularly African conservationists. So we work with a lot of universities in Rwanda and Congo to provide in-depth training to, to young, early career scientists who are interested in, in pursuing careers in conservation and science. And then the last piece of what we do is helping communities. So a lot of the people that live near gorillas, unfortunately, are are still working to meet their basic needs, primarily around food security and also livelihoods. So we have extensive programs in these two particular areas, as well as working a lot with local schools, local primary and secondary schools to kind of get kids out into nature and excited about conservation. That's amazing. How much how much time do you get to spend in Africa? Not enough. <laughs> Never <laughs> enough. Um, I'm usually there for about four times a year. So I am very lucky. I get to be over there quite a bit and I, I love it. It's really what feeds my soul is being out with our team, interacting with the community members with whom we work, with our partners. So I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. But a lot of my job is here now, a lot of it on the fundraising and administration side. So I'm I'm kind of surprised when I was doing research for our chat. Uh, I thought there were a lot more gorilla species than there actually are, mm-hmm. but there's mm-hmm. only two and two subsets. Is that correct? Yep, two species, each of which has two subspecies. So there's four types of gorillas in total. You're exactly right. Google works sometimes. <laughs> it's great. How closely are gorillas related to humans? Uh, the estimates are that they share roughly about 98% of our, our DNA. So, you know, chimpanzees and bonobos are considered the closest relatives to humans, but then gorillas are fall quickly behind that. So very, very closely rena- related. And you can see it in their behavior. You know, they, I always say they share uh, a lot of our humanity. They, they take care of their most vulnerable. They form friendships that can last for decades. They grieve the loss of a family member. I mean, all behaviors that we see in ourselves, many of the behaviors that we see in our, in our own species, we see in gorillas as well. Yeah, I was very upset that I- seen absolutely no gorillas on my 23andMe relative account. <laughs> That's a good point. 
Good point. Very Probably because none of them are represented in there. They're, they don't. They're not in that database. That's right. I think. I think we need to get them in there. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there are some Jewish gorillas. I just know it. <laughs> the people who actually work with gorillas are mm-hmm. they able to forge a relationship? I know gorillas are shy. Mm-hmm. and tend not to associate with humans, which is probably their wisest trait. But can they, the people who work with them, actually create a relationship? That's a great question. And certainly when Diane Fossey was there, and if you watch Gorillas in the Mist, you'll see that she very much had a relationship with those individual animals, many of them. We do not do that for several reasons. First and foremost, the gorillas are very susceptible to human diseases. And so something that could be a mild cold in us can be much more serious for a gorilla. So we don't want to be in close proximity with them. We try, we keep our distance so that we minimize any any chance of disease transmission. The other thing is, as scientists, we really want to know what gorilla behavior is. And if, if they're interacting with us, they're not doing what they would normally do. So we try and be as neutral as possible. But it is clear that the gorillas recognize and they know the people that are watching them. And for example, when I go to see the groups that we help protect, they know I'm not someone that's there every day. And they're very curious. You can see them looking at me and peering around vegetation, whereas they basically just ignore you know, the, the individuals that they're used to seeing every day. But but definitely we try and keep that distance relationship for the reasons that I mentioned. Does that change based on the age of the gorilla? I know I've seen videos online of scientists out in the wild with gorillas congregating around them and uh, poking at their hair and stuff and trying to see what they're all about. But the older gorillas are standing back and it's the kids who are... definitely. Just like in people, kids are super curious. They want to explore the environment. What's new? What is this? And it's the same in gorillas. It's the kids that are really curious and kind of will break that boundary sometimes and try and see if they can walk up to you. And luckily, the adults pretty much ignore us because that's what, particularly with a 400-pound silverback, you really want him to feel comfortable that you're there and not see you as a threat or something of interest and ignore you. (laughs) That's the best thing for him and for you as well. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You don't want to be thrown across the jungle. (laughs) Right. What are some common misconceptions we humans have about gorillas? Great question. I think first and foremost is that they're incredibly aggressive. So that was sort of brought to to modern thought through King Kong. And I think it's one of Diane Fossey's real legacies as, as she got to know them as individuals and got a peek into their, their social life. They're really incredibly peaceful animals for the most part. I mean, they can be aggressive when they need to defend themselves, but we always say their nickname is gentle giant. So I think that's a big myth. The other one I hear a lot is that people think a silverback is a type of gorilla, like a subspecies of gorilla, when actually a silverback is simply a an adult male gorilla. So all four of the types of gorillas have silverbacks. It's just a process of maturation. So whereas in humans at a certain age, human males, their shoulders will get broader, they'll get facial hair. For gorilla males, when they get to a certain age, one of the physical characteristics is they get that silver mantle of hair on their back. Are gorillas monogamistic? No, they are definitely not. They're definitely not. So males will breed with multiple females. And females, if they have the chance, will breed with multiple males. In some of the types of gorillas, it's it's a one male social structure. So there's only a single male in the group that she really has the option to breed with. Mountain gorillas are really unique in that they live in these more complex social groups with multiple males and multiple females. And in those under those situations, we will see that females will, will not just mate with the dominant male, but she might mate with three, four, five, six males in the group, depending on how many there are. What are some what are some surprising things about gorillas that you've learned over the years that most people don't know? 
Um, I think one of them, it does relate to, to mating behavior. Before uh, modern genetic techniques, we would know relatedness between individuals through their moms, obviously, because a gorilla infant is highly dependent on their mom and with their mom for the first three years of life. So you can recreate maternal lines, but paternal lines in these multi-male groups are much more difficult. And when we started doing the genetic data, we found that while the dominant male does sire the majority of the offspring, most of the time, it is certainly not exclusive. And so we've seen males as young as nine years of age sire and offspring, which a male doesn't really even reach physical maturity from a from a size standpoint until they're 15. We've seen males seventh ranking in the hierarchy. So with six guys ahead of them in the dominance ranking, sire infants. And that was a real surprise to us. We didn't, we, we thought maybe number two or number three male might get a chance, but certainly didn't really think that all the way down to number seven, that that would be a possibility. And for anyone interested, I just want to point out that gorillas probably are not on dating sites. No, definitely not. Definitely okay. not. What are the ways that in, in which they're they're endangered? Yeah, it's a great question, and it depends a lot on which gorilla subspecies you're talking about. So, for the two that we work with, you know, mountain gorillas are very well protected. They live; all of them live in in national parks. There's no direct poaching anymore. So, when Diane Fossey was there, people were were poaching them a lot for body parts as trophies. So, a hand as an ashtray, or a head for a mantelpiece. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. But there are snares that are set for other animals like antelope, and the gorillas unfortunately can get caught in them. But the, the biggest threat to the mountain gorillas is really their small, small habitat. They have very little habitat left, about 800 square kilometers total, and their small population size, just over a thousand individuals. So it means that one natural disaster or one global pandemic could potentially really have a real negative consequence on, on the, the population. For the growers gorillas, so that's the other subspecies that we work with, they are found only in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So just over the border from where we work in Rwanda. Here, it's interesting, there's tons and tons of beautiful intact forests left. But unfortunately, hunting here is the biggest threat. And so the estimates are we've lost 60% of those gorillas, of Grower's gorillas, in the last 20 to 25 years alone. And that is almost exclusively because of direct poaching for food. So that they are in a position that mountain gorillas were in, say, 50 years ago. And it's one of the reasons why 20 years ago, when we looked to do a, a strategic expansion, we went to Eastern Congo because we hoped that our model that had, had been successful in Rwanda, working with the Rwandan government and communities, we could have similar success in Congo. Now, did you say growler gorilla? Grower. G, it's a capital G because it's after named after someone. Capital oh. G-R-A-U-E-R apostrophe S. Growler. I, I, th- I thought it was growler gorilla and they like beer. And they you like know, beer, I, exactly. I, I'd hang <laughs> we, out with them. <laughs> we always say a great fundraiser would be a growlers for growers. But like after two sips of beer, no one would be able to say that. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they could say it as long as <laughs> right. they could still write a check. Yeah. Why? Is it so? It for, Diane Fossey was predicting that they were going to go extinct, and mm-hmm. it was a distinct possibility. Why is it so important to protect them? Why is it important to the ecosystem? Why is it important to the rest of the planet? Yeah, it's a great question. So I get asked this a lot, and I, you know, to me, I think there's sort of three things we can talk about. First and foremost is because they need protection. They are currently we are experiencing a sixth mass extinction on our planet that's estimated that over a million species are at risk of extinction. And 
Gorillas are among them. And again, unfortunately, they are actually at the top of the list with the two species. At the species level, they're considered critically endangered. So the next level up from that is extinct in the wild. So they definitely need it. But also we need them. We gorillas live in the rainforest of equatorial Africa. These are the second largest, you know, tropical rainforest left on the planet. They are the literal lungs of our planet, and they are one of the best natural defenses against climate change. It's estimated that they, you know, a similar sized area of forest in the Congo to the Amazon holds 30% more carbon. So these trees in the Congo Basin, are they're taking in carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas, and letting out oxygen. So they're really important for climate stability, climate change, weather stability, et cetera. And you can think, think of the gorillas and the other species that live there as the gardeners of these forests. So by their foraging patterns, by their sleeping patterns, you know, they make nests every night where they're breaking branches and they're opening up clearings. Like They're helping to care for these forests that are ultimately important for our own protection. And they act as a great umbrella species. You know, people might not get super excited about about protecting some dragonfly in a forest in Congo, but they can really relate to protecting a gorilla. And I think that's the, that gets to the third reason of why it's important to protect them. And that's because they share our humanity. You know, they share 98% of our DNA and they share our humanity. And so I feel like there's a real moral obligation for us to protect these incredibly complex, intelligent animals that have rich social lives that are a lot like our own. It's painful. It's painful yeah. to, to hear that, but you're doing important work. In what ways is guerrilla tourism a good idea? Or a bad idea. Yeah, it's uh, guerrilla tourism. Certainly, for mountain gorillas, has played an incredibly critical role in in conservation, and it's done extremely well by the government. It's managed by the governments of of Rwanda, Congo, and and Uganda, and it's very small scale tourism. So, for example, each family can only be visited one time per day by a maximum of eight visitors, and so it's a very low impact form of tourism. But it's, it's played a critical role in helping to rebuild the economy in Rwanda, to contributing to conservation, not just of the park where the gorillas live, but the other three parks in the country. And in addition, 10% of the revenue from your fee to go see the gorillas is shared with the local communities for those sort of need projects that we, we referenced earlier, whether it be infrastructure, building schools or health clinics or forming livelihood cooperatives, etc. So I think it's played a critically important role. I don't know that the model that that exists for mountain gorillas can be replicated everywhere because you know some of these gorilla populations are in such remote areas with very little infrastructure. So I think we need to have multiple tools in the toolkit to ensure gorilla conservation across the board, but it definitely has played a critically important role and I think it's it's part of the reason why mountain gorillas are the only great apes that are increasing in the wild. Do people ever who are are visiting Africa do they ever just encounter gorillas in the wild or do they have to be on tours to actually get to where they are? You have to pretty much be on tours. Yeah. To get into like, for example, in Rwanda, to get into the national park, you're always accompanied by a park guide. Yeah. So, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing for the park. It's a good thing for people. There are other wild animals in there like buffalo and elephant. You want someone who's experienced taking you through the forest. You don't want to just be wandering through there on your own. Nothing 
makes you feel less confident than than trekking up a volcano in a rainforest in Rwanda. You realize <laughs> yeah. how many of our spidey senses we've really lost. <laughs> Do gorillas drink coffee? Are they yeah. anywhere near the coffee fields? Or they-, they don't even drink water, let alone coffee. No, they don't. So what, they do they, just, what do they drink? They just kind of slurp on the leaves, right? Get their yeah, moisture they, that way? They get most of their moisture, you know, they're vegetarians and they're eating tons of, of plant material. So they get most of their, their, the liquid they need just from their diet. We talked about the tourism aspect. If people actually encounter a gorilla in the wild or on a tour, what, what should they know about human behavior? to not affect the gorillas. Yeah, well, the the great thing is when you're with your guide, every day before tourists go out with the gorillas, they get a briefing. So the guides tell them about, this is the family you're going to visit, this is who's in the family, this is some of the personalities, and also here's how we behave when we go into the forest. So, for example, you don't spit when you're in the forest. You don't, if you have to cough, you turn your head to the side and, you know, sort of, we've we've all learned this now very much during the COVID era, but but these, these were, these were good rules before COVID, but now I think it's more, it's more on our mind. But, you know, you cough to the side. We don't eat in front of the gorillas. You don't drink in front of the gorillas. And, you know, you, we're in their space. So again, for the most part, they ignore you. But if for some reason they're interested in you, you know, the guy will back you up. There, a lot of times they don't necessarily like to be stared at the same way, you know, humans don't like to necessarily be stared at. It can make you feel very uncomfortable. So if, if you see a gorilla looking at you a lot of times the polite thing is to kind of look to the side and that's what they do in their own society they do a lot of side looking as opposed to direct eye to eye contact but new yorkers learn that riding the subway totally completely completely yeah it's always fun for me like if i step back and watch human behavior the way that i would watch gorilla behavior it's fascinating and my my daughter for example whenever she tries a new food she always will smell it first before she'll eat it and you primates do that it's such a it's such a primate behavior and you see gorillas do it and they encounter a novel food or object they'll take it up and they'll smell it before they'll ingest it so it's really fun sort of to step back sometimes and watch human behavior and you really see how similar we are we've seen videos of of gorillas being taught sign language. Mm-hmm. Would that be possible with gorillas in the wild? So it's really just one gorilla, Coco, that was taught sign language in a lab setting. And no, I, I don't think it would be possible in the wild. Um, again, not wanting to have those interactions at all. And Coco was raised in a very, she was raised in a human environment. I'm not exactly sure all the methods they use, but maybe they would form her hands in the way that you might do with a child. And that's none of that is something that that's possible. So that was work that was done in the 70s and 80s. Coco passed away a few years ago. But we're really more interested in how do gorillas naturally communicate with, with each other. And one of the fun studies you asked about, what are some surprising things we've learned? A fun study we published last year was looking at the chest beat, which is this iconic gorilla behavior. So little gorillas will do it when they want to play. You know, a lot of play behaviors are practicing to be an adult. So when gorillas want to play with each other, they'll walk up and do a chest beat. But the males do it. It's a, it's a form of communication. They do it a lot in displays both at females, but at other males. And we combined uh, recordings of males chest beating and analyzed those chest beats and combined that with data that we took with a specialized camera that lets us extrapolate the actual size of a gorilla. You know, again, how do you measure a gorilla? They don't walk up to a you know, a measuring tape, like we take our kids and they get measured at the doctors. There's no way to measure a gorilla. So we've come up with this fun way with a camera 
that we can take photos and then extrapolate back on the computer how big a gorilla is. And what we found was that the chest beat is a very honest signal of a male quality. So larger males will have a lower chest beat than smaller males. And so this is a way that if you're approaching a rival and you hear a chest beat, you can actually get some information about your rival just before you ever see him. The same thing with a female. If you hear a chest beat, you can actually get some idea of, hey, is this going to be a good mate for me or not, just based on the sound of the chest beat. So that was a, a very fun study combining these two very different data sources to look at whether or not chest beats really serve as a good communication tool in guerrilla society. And it turns out they do. Would it help me on Match.com if I put it, made a recording of my chest beat? <laughs> I don't know if that's effective. Probably not. Probably, Probably not. Yeah. But if you do, make sure you do it with open palms. Most people do it like with a fist. But actually, you can see in the picture that's right behind me, it's actually a picture of a chest beat, and you can see that the hands are open. Yeah. So that's a, if you start your chest beat like that, you're already like better off than about 95% of people who try and do a chest beat. Making a little side trip here. I know we talked a little bit before the recording of King Kong. When we see gorillas in movies like King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, I know they're fictionalized. I know they're larger than life and all that. How close are they in behavior to real gorillas? I really think it depends on the film itself. But in any of those, they're really depicting a, a, a much more human-like character. I will say, I think at one point I did, I had to rank all the the various King Kongs in terms of believability. And I found the one, um, what Andy Serkis's Kong that he did really did incorporate a lot of great behaviors. And he actually came and studied gorilla behavior with us in Rwanda. But for example, his chest beat, he had the open chest, one of the, uh, the open hand, sorry. One of the things I loved is there's a scene where he's actually, Kong is playing and he's laughing. And I don't know that this is for sure true, but I can remember being in the forest with Andy one day and these two males, these two brothers were just playing, playing, playing with each other and laughing away. And it's kind of a quiet vocalization, so you often don't hear it very well. Uh -huh. But in my mind, Kong laughing in that movie was a direct result of, of Andy Serkis seeing this behavior in the wild. That's awesome. I, yeah. I, I'm going to have to go back and revisit that movie. To yeah. See that. How do the behaviors of gorillas differ in the wild and in captivity? It's a great question. So the, the type of gorillas, of the four types of gorillas that are in the wild, only one is found in captivity. So it's actually the other three are only found in the wild. And so the two that we work with are found only found in the wild. So we don't have like direct comparisons we can make between mountain gorillas in captivity and western lowland gorillas that you would see in zoos. I mean, there's a lot of similarities in their behaviors, a lot of similarities in the, the communication behaviors that they use and maternal investment, et cetera. I think one of the biggest differences we see, for example, with mountain gorillas is just this very this flexibility and social structure where you can have multiple adult males and females living together. And that has not been well replicated in a, in a captive setting. So when you look at Western lowland gorillas in the wild, it's generally a single male, multi-female group. And that's what we see for the most part in captivity as well. Are gorillas in zoos a good idea or, or not? I don't know how you feel about zoos in general. There's a lot of controversy around yeah. zoos. But yeah. chances are, you know, most of us wouldn't see a lot of these species if we didn't have them in zoos. Exactly. And I think a lot of people don't realize that reputable zoos have not taken gorillas out of the wild since the 1970s. So the vast majority, if not almost all of the gorillas you will see in a zoo, they were actually born there. So they've lived there their entire lives. And yeah, I think that they can serve a really important ambassador role 
for their wild counterparts when they're kept in species, um, you know, typical groups, when they're provided with lots of enrichment in their environment. So a lot of zoos focus on how do we make it more challenging for them to find their food like they would have to do in the wild. So hiding it or they'll use tools to extract things like honey out of a, you know, out of a, a hidden cavity and a tree in their environment. So I feel like that there's a really valuable role that those animals can play. And also many modern zoos now, I mean, conservation is part of their mission. So we actually have zoos that support us and are providing support from, you know, their communities to help save gorillas in the wild. Why are there no mountain gorillas in zoos? I think it's just a sort of a historic legacy, like the the trade that came out of Africa was much more focused on Western Africa, so where Western lowland gorillas were found. There were a few mountain gorillas in captivity in the 70s, 60s, 70s. They never really formed a, a significantly large enough population, I think, to maintain itself over the long term. And also at the time, you know, they are pretty strict foliovores. So they have very little fruit in their diet. Their diet's a bit different than that of the other gorillas. And I think it was it was harder at that point in time to keep them alive. I think now they could be kept alive in a captive setting, but no one would ever take a mountain gorilla out of the wild and put it in captivity. So it's a mute point. But we've learned a lot. I think there's been a lot that's learned about diets of animals in a captive setting to, to make them more rep- replicate those that you would see in a wild counterpart. Is there anything that you would like to answer about yourself, gorillas, or the Diane Fossey Fund that I have not asked about? Um, great question. I think just, you know, for listeners, one of the things, because I always say I eat, breathe, and sleep gorillas, and I'm always kind of surprised that a lot of people don't realize that gorillas are at risk. They think because they're these big, strong, iconic animals, well, there's no way they could be at risk of extinction, but they, they very much are. And so, People always often ask me, well, what can I do if I, if I can't travel to Africa to visit them? What can I do? And I think just being educated about the challenges that are facing wild animals and wild places, being a voice for those animals and places, sharing information with your friends, obviously supporting organizations that are doing important work on the ground, but also voting. I mean, a big, a big piece of conservation is getting leaders in place that are conservation-minded, that believe that climate change is real, that want to provide resources to help protect these areas. Because at the end of the day, if we want gorillas and elephants and rhinos and orangutans to survive, it is not the responsibility solely of the countries where they live. It's a global responsibility. And we all, whether it be individuals, corporations, governments, need to be playing a role in that. So educate, inform, vote and support if you can. Well, Tara, thank you so much for being a guest on Life Slices. We'd really appreciate it and much continued success with the gorillas. And I hope to get over there someday. I do want to see them in person. I love gorillas. Yeah, it's life-changing. It really is. I, I, you know... I'm with people who go see them. They cry. They they recount it as one of their most amazing experiences. It it really is. There's something so special because when you sit down and you're 10, 20 feet away from a gorilla and they're looking at you and they're looking back at you, it is a kindred spirit. You know, you're seeing yourself reflected in their eyes and their curiosity. So okay, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> goosebumps from that. That's great. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Tara Stowinski for her time, knowledge, and experience. If you would like to learn more about the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund or to make a donation, go to gorillafund.org. One word, gorillafund.org. Remember, gorillas share 98% of our DNA, making them relatives. Surely you'd want to help save your relatives, even ones you may not be close to. 
you enjoyed Life Slices, please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts and like us on social media. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.